the way that I get really present, kind of focus on the importance to me of that thing. The risk of getting distracted from that thing is extremely high because it's scary and there will be bits of your psychology that are screaming at you, don't try this thing, don't do this thing. Let's take the easier path. Hi there, thanks for being here. I'm Greg, a leadership and career coach. In this podcast, I interview people who follow their passion and purpose. I go deep into understanding their motivations, their constraints, and what was going on intellectually and emotionally in the key parts of their journey. With this podcast, I want to inspire others to follow their passion and purpose. If this is you, you may also be interested in my six-week Find Direction course. You can find more information at www.dareby.me. Derby yourself, my friends. My guest today is Derry Hughes. I'm going to introduce his impressive career first, but actually it's not the reason he's my guest today. Derry has founded two companies that help leaders of consulting firms to recruit, train, and develop their teams. He's got nearly 20 years of experience in strategic consulting. Derry graduated from Oxford University with a first class degree in organic chemistry. He even went all the way to doing a PhD there. He then started his career at Bain and continued with a few freelance roles and then moved on to becoming the CFO and COO in other strategic consultancies. After this, he founded his two companies, Honeycomb PS and Explorer Consulting. The reason Derry is my guest today is that a few months ago, he wrote a post on LinkedIn where he very openly talked about his personal difficulties and how he has been working through them. To me, this was a beautiful example of daring to be, daring to show up with his strength and, and vulnerabilities. We'll also dive into his career decisions, his transition points. And because of all of this, I'm very excited to uh, have this conversation with Derry. And so Derry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Greg. It's awesome to be here. I want to kick it off and say a few words and you can tell me what they evoke for you. Asymmetric synthesis of piperidines, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, and then another word that I definitely can't pronounce, octahydrohindrolosazine something. So what does that <laughs> evoke for you? Oh God, that evokes so many things, so many memories of a completely different time in my life. Um, many, many hours, a fume cupboard, trying to do experiments when my heart wasn't in it and my mind wasn't in it. It was a really... It's a really challenging period of my life, actually. And so tell us about what were you doing then? What, what is it? Maybe frame for us what was going on in, in your mind then. The, that's the title of my PhD. I spent four years uh, working on my PhD in that research group. And it's organic chemistry. So it's very hands-on, very practical. One of the realizations I had during that time was that the research job, which you think of as being... You know, a very intellectual pursuit is actually a very practical pursuit. And a huge amount of the time was spent just handle turning of setting up experiments, cleaning glassware, purifying compounds, classifying compounds, writing notes, and a tiny little bit of it was spent thinking about the experiment that you might do. It was a period of my life that I went into fairly blindly, in fact, very blindly, I would say with hindsight, and I stuck out with a resolute determination to complete it despite finding it really difficult and, and really miserable because I didn't want to quit. And I realized quite early on that wasn't the direction I wanted to go in my career. <laughs> when I reflect back on that now with the, the depth of understanding I've gathered about myself in the last two years, I realize now that the reasons that I did that PhD had very little to do with me and what I needed and what I was good at and what suited me and everything to do with 
my childhood and my upbringing and the, my relationship with my father in particular. And I when before I even started my undergrad, I knew that I wanted to do a PhD because my dad has a PhD and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. Ultimately, it's about doing things because you believe unconsciously that's the thing that's going to win you affection and, and love from your parents. I now understand that's why I went into a PhD, despite it really not suiting my psychology very well at all to do that kind of long drawn out research process. And the reason that I moved and did very well in consulting is the consulting kind of project driven uh, approach to work really suits me a lot better, but I didn't understand any of that at the time. I was just in a bit of a fog. You realized early on that it wasn't for you, but you still had the determination to continue. It sounds like what a strong internal struggle. Yeah, definitely. There's an option when you're doing a PhD or a DPhil, as it's called at Oxford, um, to stop and, and write up and call it an MPhil, a Master of Philosophy instead. People do that sometimes after one or two years. That's the kind of the get out. And I was aware of that option and I briefly considered it, but there was just something inside me that would have judged myself as a quitter if I'd done that. And I think, again, going back to the fundamental driver of wanting to match or outperform my dad and him getting a PhD, it would have made me lesser than him in my own eyes, my own judgment. And so it was something that I considered and probably something that I should have done with hindsight, but I never thought about it seriously enough to actually jump. And I just, I stuck it out and I, frankly, now I did the bare minimum to, to get through and. I've never gone back to my thesis and I'm not particularly proud of it. It was a path that I probably should have never gone down, but it was one that I wasn't prepared to step off once I was on it at that stage of my life. There must have been some learnings from this experience. What would be the key ones for you? In terms of what I now know about my own self-judgment, the way that that can drive so many of my behaviors, and I see the fear of judgment as a massive driver of behavior in a lot of people. What people, I don't think necessarily realize consciously is that they're often judging themselves as well or judge other people. And there's a saying in psychotherapy, if you spot it, you've got it. And so one of the best ways to work out how you're judging yourself is to analyze your judgments of other people. So if you spot a behavior in somebody else that you don't like, there's a very good chance that it's something that you do personally that you're not aware of, particularly if you feel like anger towards that person or judgment towards that person. And so allowing yourself, your behaviors and your decisions to be driven by unconscious judgment of yourself is one of the, the biggest things. And at that time in my life, I would have judged myself to be a quitter if I'd stopped, if I just said, actually, I'm much better suited to a different career path than being a research chemist. I'm much better suited to working in a different environment, I'm much better suited to doing a different type of work. And it's okay to make that decision and move and change directions and do something else. And that, I guess, not just sticking with something because you've started it, but having that conscious decision that it's the thing you want to do to continue. Actually, that brings to mind a, a conversation I had with one of the partners at Bain & Company, the, the consulting firm I started at, where I remember her saying to me that, Every year she went for two or three job interviews externally, not because she was planning to leave Bain or she even wanted to leave Bain, but because she always wanted to be making a positive decision to stay at Bain. 
And so that was her tool that she used to keep herself on the right track and make sure that she was doing that consciously, not just on the hamster wheel, following the momentum or worrying about the sunk cost of all of the years that she'd put into it. And I was worried about the sunk cost because during a PhD, if you start a PhD and you don't leave with a PhD, you feel like you've wasted a ton of time. Even if you leave with an MPhil, you don't have doctor in front of your name. How early did you figure out that it wasn't for you? Early on in the second year, maybe even in the first year of my PhD, I was certainly finding it very difficult to come on and into the lab every day and work with focus. My productivity would go in these ridiculous boom and bust cycles where I'd, I'd work incredibly hard for 10 days, two weeks, and then I'd be in this kind of minimum state of, of functioning until I had a holiday and then I'd have a break and then I'd come out with this renewed energy and I'd go way too fast, way too hard. And I'd burn myself out again within 10 to 14 days. And I just realized that I wasn't getting any direct motivation and enjoyment from the day-to-day -day activities. I was sponsored as well by AstraZeneca. And so I had some commitments to them to go and do summer, summer placements. I went up and spent the summer in their labs and just didn't really enjoy it. And it was those moments just, I started to realize I'm not enjoying this day to day and I'm not going to start enjoying it. That's when I started getting interested in business. My supervisor actually had off the back of his research had, had spun out two or three different companies, which were very successful. He was a wealthy man, still spending a lot of time in and around the lab and doing his work. But I think two of his companies he'd merged and sold for over 300 million. He'd made a phenomenal amount of money. And one he had a new startup that was running in our lab at the same time. So I started getting interested in business and I realized I was much more interested in the business that was happening in the lab than I was in the chemistry research. And that's when I started to think actually. That's not a route I've ever really thought about. It's not a route I knew much about. It's my, my parents hadn't given me any guidance on going into consulting or into business or anything. It's then that I started to, to look and think about it, which was probably, you know, end of my first year, start of my second year. And it took me then another two and a half years to finish it through my stubbornness. Did you manage to accept the fact that you didn't like it? I'm just curious about the self-judgment perspective of, well, I don't like it, but actually am I okay with not liking it and then just getting my head down and finishing this and, and then I'll do something else. Not in the moment, really. No, it was very difficult. I think looking back, I think I had undiagnosed depression at that time. My productivity was so poor and my ability to focus was, was so poor. And there was no, there was no support structures at that time. The whole culture in these research institutions tends to be whoever works hardest is celebrated. Mental health issues were just completely ignored. We actually had one person in our lab who, no exaggeration, gave up his flats in Oxford because he was working 20 hours a day in the lab and would either sleep for three or four hours in the disabled toilet in the building, or when the security kicked him out, he'd just walk the streets for a few hours till he could get back in and then he'd work again because he was so pathologically obsessed with his research. Nothing was done. I look back and shudder at the lack of support that he had at that time. And so my much subtler mental health struggles were never going to get a look in. So I judged myself a lot. I felt a lot of shame and guilt for not working, but was unable to work. 
the only way I need to get out of it was to just slowly inch through to completion to this big deadline that I had to, had to get to because I couldn't allow myself to quit. And so it sounds like you had this maybe little light at the end of the tunnel, which was, okay, the business, your business interest. And can you tell about how you got into consulting and being? Yeah, sure. I, I distracted myself in a couple of ways during my PhD. Firstly, I was playing rugby to quite a high level. And so I, I trained a lot and through that became president of the kind of university sports club, club called Vincent's and that run as a little business. So uh, I, my kind of initial foray into business was trying to do very simple, small business stuff, get more people to visit the club and spend money over the bar, get more people to buy lunches, get more people to buy dinners, run events, et cetera. Just trying to, trying to massage the PL. No idea what I was doing at that time. I was just starting to learn how to make a small business function. And I realized that I really enjoyed that and I got a real buzz out of it. So part of the problem with the PhD was I was spending more and more time on that stuff rather than actually getting the PhD done because that's where I was getting energy from. And then some friends of mine were applying to consulting firms. Some of the friends from my undergrad had gone into consulting firms and I was vaguely aware of it and started going to a few milk crowd presentations, the kind of usual route from university into these things and researched it, did loads of practice case study interviews, applied to maybe 15 firms. I only got two offers out at the end of it. One was with Bain & Company and one was with Credo, the firm I later joined as their CFOO. It's a striking thing to me because when I joined Bain, I was really good. I got promoted really quickly, faster than anyone else in my peer group. I was fortunate that I got offers from firms that I was a good fit for and culturally aligned with the way that I wanted to work. I worked really hard to prepare for those interviews and to, to navigate the interviews effectively. And Bain was the one that I really wanted. I had my eyes on the prize. I remember actually in the, in my final round interviews with Bain, realizing that this was it. This was the moment where all of the effort and all of the work to try and get this job was coming down to this final 45 minute interview. And I actually got myself in a bit in the mindset that I would have just before playing a big rugby match, like running out to a varsity match or running out playing for the Blues against, you know, a few months earlier, I'd played against Australia when they were on tour and they played Oxford. Getting myself in that mindset as the start of the interview to be as focused and present and in the moment as I possibly could be to perform at my best so that I could get this thing that I wanted. How did you get into that mindset? Sounds like a useful tool. So I've never really considered that. The other thing that I do is I'm a competitive powerlifter and being in the moment when you go out to lift a heavy weight. So for those that don't know, powerlifting is a sport where you, you lift a barbell and you lift it as heavy as you can in three different lifts, a squat, a bench press and a deadlift. And, um, the scariest one in a way is the squat because you put the bar across your shoulders and you have to bend down and stand up again. And if you can't stand up the bar pushes you down to the floor. It's a humiliating moment when you realize that in front of everybody who's watching you, you are not strong enough to lift the thing you wanted to be able to lift. And you have to have the five spotters around you who catch the bar and make sure you're safe and it's completely safe, but you have to be very absolutely in the moment when you step out that mindset in, in a rugby changing room before an interview, before a big presentation. And certainly before stepping under the bar for powerlifting is, is 
the ability to get completely into that moment and then visualize exactly what you need to do. And that visualization in the moment is the, is the tool I use to just think through exactly how am I going to execute this? How's it going to feel so that when you're in that moment and you've visualized yourself doing it effectively, you can focus a hundred percent on the effort and not be thinking about what you need to be doing. It's about focusing your energy and, and bringing your focus really a hundred percent into the thing that you're doing in that moment. And so that everything in your mindset is geared towards performing that one task exceptionally well mm. in, the, in the best way that you possibly can. The practical way that I, I do it is I, I either stand or I pace a little bit and I just picture myself saying what I need to say, or I picture myself with powerlifting exactly where I'm going to put my hands, how I'm going to stamp my feet, how I'm going to tense before I lift the bar up, how I'm going to step back. And with an interview with the presentation, it's exactly how am I going to stand? What am I going to say? What emotional state do I need to be in? How am I going to respond when I get questions? What pace am I going to respond with? What types of words am I going to respond with? How am I going to buy myself some time, et cetera? So you're very much in exactly how do I execute this thing incredibly well? And what's it going to look and feel like to me in the moment when I'm doing that? So that when I'm there, it feels familiar. That's how I think about it. Yeah. And it sounds extremely powerful. First of all, does it work? Yeah, it has so far for me. Okay, so um, it works? Not 100% of it, you know, take the powerlifting example. Sometimes there's just too much weight on the bar. But what it does is it works to allow you to perform as best as you're able to perform. In presentation, sometimes you're going to get a curveball question. But if you're in the right emotional state so that you're present in the room and you're conscious, you're not going to get triggered by that curveball question. You're not going to get knocked off your stride, unable to answer it. You're going to just accept it, accept the person who's asked it and be able to respond consciously and calmly without stress. Mm. If you're, if you get into that right mental state. Yeah. So, yeah. I'd say it works. How do you get into that emotional state? The way that I get really present, I focus on the importance to me of that thing. The risk of getting distracted from that thing is extremely high because it's scary and there will be bits of your psychology that are screaming at you. Don't try this thing. Don't do this thing. Let's take the easier path. Let's just stop. And so the way that I've found to quieten down those voices and stay focused is to just constantly remind myself of the importance of this thing to me and the work that I've done to get there. And that if I allow myself to get distracted in that, this moment, I'm going to throw away all of the work that I've done. And so there is nothing that matters more in that moment than executing what you've, what you've come to do. That is true. Actually, whether it's a very specific, intense experience, like nailing the dream job interview, or if you're a stand-up comedian doing your first gig, like those are intense moments, but I think it also implies to longer term things like starting a business. And remembering the why behind the business that you've started, how, why it's important to you and what you need to do is just as important. And the risk of getting distracted is just as high, in fact, higher, I would argue, because you're having to stay focused every day, all the time over multiple weeks, months, and years to be successful, that type of thing. And that 
coming back to that level of importance and that focus on what's really important to you and your why behind doing it and all of the work you've done to date that's a risk if you don't execute allows me to get into that intense focus it's almost a it's a flow state in a way in the examples i'm talking about it's a very intense in the moment flow state that only needs to last for a few moments but it's no different i don't think to a a multi-hour flow state where you're creating something for the first time or when you're trying to achieve something longer term you just have to manage that focus a bit better because you can't operate on that level of intensity all the time or even for very long it sounds like meaning to you is what allows you to then actually execute for the longer term like being an entrepreneur that sense of mission is such a critical thing if you want to achieve something over the longer term for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs in particular personal mission and aligning that with what you're trying to do in your business is so critical i would extend that to everybody and more and more people will start to think this job that i'm doing is not aligned with my personal mission and if you do that your motivation for it will wane i've spent a lot of time thinking about my personal mission recently and about how my different business activities fit within that and it gives me a hell of a lot more motivation on days when it's difficult to be able to say, okay, I, I need to do this thing because I'm trying to live in mission. I'm trying to move in this direction. I'm trying to achieve this outcome, which will unlock a whole bunch of stuff that is important to me. Yeah. And for me, most of that is around my kids and spending time with them, et cetera. But for everybody, I think should think about what really matters to them and particularly what matters to them that they find difficult. Can you talk to this? It's very easy to write a mission, which is all the stuff that I enjoy doing and I do it naturally. And that's me. So you could have somebody who just naturally loves sharing their views on YouTube and you know, they could say that their mission is to educate the world on this thing that they're really interested in, but they're going to do that anyway. The mission is not a challenge for them. It's not a stretch and it's not moving them into a new direction that they want to go in. And for most people, the value in thinking about writing down your mission is to figure out the direction you want to move in that's difficult for you. And so I'm a big believer in your mission being focused around the things that you aspire to be that you find difficult, because those are the things that you need constant reminding of the things that you need to constantly say, why am I not doing this thing that I said I wanted to do? Can you give an example? Yeah, I'll talk about mine. And again, this is a personal mission. This isn't my, this is a business mission, but the two are, two are connected because my business is a huge part of my life. But so my personal mission is I am here now creating a world of golden connections by shouting my joy and hearing it echo. There are multiple elements to that, but there's essentially four parts really. So there's the bit that the stars, I am here now is all about presence. The thing that I personally find very difficult is being present at home, I get sucked into my phone I get sucked into Twitter. I get sucked into LinkedIn and reading and I use it as a distraction method all the time. The I am here now piece is to constantly remind me to be in the moment and present with whoever I'm with. Creating a world of golden connections is just strongly believe and get so much from connecting to other people and helping other people. And that probably is something that I do relatively naturally, but e equally, it's something that 
I find challenging in person to necessarily try and connect with somebody. I can shut down quite easily. I can pull myself out of social situations quite easily. So that's a reminder to constantly step forward and start the conversation and talk to people. Shouting my joy is a big realization I've had recently that as a child, I was blocked from being joyful. Joy wasn't particularly celebrated in the, the house that I grew up in. And it's a, an emotion that I've felt shame about over the years. I, I associate it with being silly. People will look at me like it's embarrassing. Yeah. You don't make a fool of yourself. And so I now very consciously forced myself to try and be joyful with my kids in particular and create these moments of happiness and sparks and just do silly, goofy stuff with them. The final part of it is shouting joy and hearing it echo. And that's a reminder to me that if I shout that joy, then it's going to trigger joy in other people and they're going to come back and that emotion is that positive emotion is going to, it's going to build. So those elements of that mission statement come together to constantly just give me a dig in the ribs. If I'm sitting on my phone, when my kids want to talk to me, or, um, if I'm in a social situation and there's somebody that I could go and say hi to, to just go and say hi to them because I find those things difficult to do. How, how do you remind yourself of your mission? I want this in, just imprinted in my brain. I'm good enough now at just recognizing those moments where I've become unconscious that, and as I've got that kind of clarity of the different parts of it, that it just pops into my brain. I have it written down. So I do refer back to it and read it at times, maybe once a week, something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm involved in a couple of different men's groups and we quite often talk about our missions in those groups as a way of just reinforcing it and keeping ourselves on track. So I speak about it pretty frequently. And whenever I notice that I'm slipping into a negative mental state or I'm procrastinating or I'm overeating, which is one of my kind of addictive coping mechanisms, or I'm on my phone too much, it just pops into my head. I'm like, this isn't the way that you are saying you want to live your life. So why are you doing that? Why are you allowing yourself to slip down that route? It's a really beautiful mission statement. Listening to you explaining made me actually quite emotional and I wonder, how did you get to write it? Yeah. I thought you'd ask that question. How much can I talk about? I'm involved with an organization called the Mankind Project and it's an incredible group of men. The whole project is about positive masculinity and helping men just understand themselves better. And one of the, the flagship event that they run is called the New Warrior Training Adventure and it's, it's a weekend in the beautiful, well, the one I went to is, uh, was in the beautiful countryside of Devon. And it's just a group of men supported by a larger group of men to help figure stuff like this out. I developed my mission whilst I was on that weekend. At the center of it is thinking about what you as a child would have wanted and didn't get and using that to figure out what you want to give out into the world that was missing, that was missing in your life that you then want to give back. Because those are the things that you will find difficult because you're not used to having them and you don't know how to operate in that space, but they're also the things that you know that you needed. You said you share your mission statements to people around frequently. How much do you share it in business settings? Not at all. And that's an interesting thing. I mean, this is all relatively new, new for me, but I don't yet know how responsive people will be to that kind of explicit expression of a mission statement. So that's a hurdle that I need to get over in terms of my own 
vulnerability and and openness. I would like to start sharing more. I'd like to add a bit on my email signatures, for example, but I haven't quite jumped over that, that hurdle yet. The way that I do share it is, so the focus of my business life now is building out my training business for consultants and consulting skills. And what I try and bring into those training sessions and the way that we design those are all of the elements of my mission statement. So when we are delivering training, when I'm personally delivering training, I make a huge effort to be absolutely present in the session, in the room, focused on the people that are there. I make an absolute focus effort to connect to people. I make an effort to make them fun and joyful and to shout that joy and share it and make and bring a sense of humor into the room and to hopefully hear that echo back from others. A huge part of what I'm doing in that kind of day-to-day -day existence is enabling me to live that mission statement. And then when I talk to people about it, I talk, I use some of that language. So I talk about building connections. I talk about being present. I talk about the kind of direct, honest uh, feedback that we give that enables all of that. So it kind of filters into mm. business life, but I'm not so explicit about it yet. If we go back to where we were, where you were in Bain, you got promoted quite quickly. What made you actually transition from Bain to something else? I think when I left Bain 20, 10 years ago, I was enjoying the work and I loved the intellectual challenge of it, but I couldn't see a way to make that work compatible with my upcoming life as a parent. So. My wife was pregnant. Our eldest daughter was born in November, 2012, a few months after I left. And I was just really struggling to see how I could be the dad I wanted to be whilst doing that job. And I'd gone through a particularly difficult patch. Like I'd been traveling a lot. I'd been on some really intense projects. I was tired. I was unhealthy. I was managing my stress by drinking too much at the weekends, partying a lot. And then going through a period where we had a lot of weddings and a lot of stag do's and then getting on a plane on a Monday morning at 5am and uh, coming back home on Thursday night and just looking at my whole kind of life system at that time and thinking, I can't see how I'm going to fit a baby into this and be the dad that I want to be. Some people do that and they can manage that. And uh, I just, I couldn't see how I could personally manage to do that. And actually it was my wife who, I guess, what's the right, I guess she's shone a light on some stuff that I was unconscious to in terms of my physical health and my relationships and stuff and how that was impacted by my work. And we had a very honest conversation about the life that we want to build. And we made a conscious decision that we were going to move out of London. I was going to work independently and start to pursue some of the entrepreneurial stuff that I'd bought her senseless about over the years, talking about all my different business ideas that I'd got. She was like, well, you finally do some of those things. And so it was, ultimately it wasn't a difficult decision to leave because it was sort of relieving a lot of pressure to jump off and go and do something else. What I found fascinating at the time was the number of conversations I had with other people who expressed jealousy about me leaving. And when I, when I left, I had a day rate contract two to three days a week lined up with one client. I knew nothing about independent consulting at the time. I'd had one conversation with an ex-Bainey who'd gone and done something similar, who'd actually lined me up with, with that client as well. I had no kind of real sense of the financial security that I might have. I wanted to 
do a bit of direct consulting, start working on a startup. My first startup idea was an online cooking school, um, which I spent six months working on and then realized that I was just woefully unprepared to launch this business, that it needed significant capital and that I just wasn't the right person in the right place to try and do that. So I stepped out of Bain into nothing really other than I'm a Bain manager. I can get some day rate consulting jobs. That was my kind of fallback financial security with my wife about to go on a years of maternity leave. I've never really figured out why there were people at the time saying, I'm jealous of you leaving and I'm leaving. I'm not leaving to do anything. I haven't landed some incredible job or like found some new opportunity out there. And I reflect a lot on what has, what was blocking those people from making the same moves? What was stopping them from leaving when they said they want to leave? And some of the people that said that to me are still working there now, 10 years off. I think that people find it very difficult to step off a train that they've, that they're on. Often it needs a bit of a crisis point, a bit of major transition in your life to, to give you the kick to do that. What do you think they were jealous of? Maybe they didn't particularly want to leave themselves. Um, jealous of the excitement of stepping into something new, maybe. I think everybody has a different appetite and attitude to risk. I've realized that I'm quite risk tolerant. Like I, I will take fairly reasonably sizable bets on how I spend my time and my money with uncertain outcomes. And lots of people that go into the, the kind of professional jobs have a much lower level of risk tolerance. It could be that they're jealous that they don't have the same mindset that someone else has got or that they're, are they jealous of just the good bits that they perceive from someone else's decisions or situation and they just ignore all of the, the negatives and the downside. Yeah, I don't know. What came to me as well was maybe jealousy of your qualities of independence, of taking risks, of being free. Also, what I'm hearing as a coach and obviously talking to lots of people about this topic is there is the sunk cost effect for sure is yeah. I've invested into this career like you had in your PhD. And for Bain, if you'd been there for three years, then I've invested into this consulting path where I'm investing into a potential partnership position in the future. Yeah. If I give this up, well, okay, maybe I could give this up. But then there is the other point, which is for what? the uncertainty of the, what could happen outside and that's risk uh, aversion for sure, but also the lack of clarity of what you want. A lot of people are not sure what they want. So there is maybe a certain comfort from the routine. They know what the path can look like. So there is this certainty, but then there isn't something appealing enough to them or clear enough that makes them take the jump. You've got to see a material difference between the life you currently have and the life you want for it to be worth that risk. The traditional kind of rule of thumb in SaaS businesses is someone will only switch from one, from their incumbent provider to another, if they see five to 10 times benefit. I don't know how they're measuring it, but anyway, the point is like the new thing has got to be a lot better because of the switching costs. And yeah. from a career perspective, it's the same thing, right? You've either got to be miserable enough in your current situation or see an extraordinary new opportunity that it's worth that jump. The other thing I've observed is people get themselves to a point where they become financially trapped by whatever they're doing. 
And particularly if you're in a career where your pay is escalating pretty rapidly and when you're in your mid twenties and you're making six figures and then you're in your early thirties and you're making a quarter of a million pounds a year. And then it goes up from there. And if your lifestyle expands, cause you say, right, well, I've got this much money now. I'm going to buy the big house. And if you're in a culture where you want your kids to go to private school and like you've got all of these things just mounting up, often it's very hard for people to switch because they can't see an immediate path to yeah. making as much money as they need to make. So one of the things that I was lucky with was we switched before we'd got to that point. We switched when we were living in a small flat in Wandsworth Common in London. And then we moved out to Hartford and we bought a house that was relatively cheap at the time. And so we, we didn't have that kind of backlog of, of run rate cost that needs to be handled. And I think that can be a real straight jacket for people in switching as well. So you left Bain, uh, but then what did you do? I really wanted to run my own business and I talked with loads of, Bain's a very entrepreneurial business, like a ridiculous number of members have started very successful businesses. And so a lot of the conversation there is around starting businesses and this idea and that idea. And despite that, I still managed to come out very naive about what it actually took to, to start a business, but that's really what I wanted to do. And so I was independent consulting to pay the bills and starting this, my go cook business idea on the side. And I slipped into four or five years of independent consulting on a, on an almost full-time basis. So I spent six months on the business and then I mothballed it. And then it always just became easier just to take the money from an independent consulting contract. Very difficult to get those contracts to be less than full-time clients. And so I was making good money, independent consulting, working much less hard than I'd been working at Bain and around a lot more for the kids. But I still, at that point in my life, I had not got this sense of mission. I'd not got this North star for what I was doing. So I was viewing a lot of these contracts as primarily just a relatively easy way to get paid a reasonably amount, good amount of money and to be around for my kids. And that's fine. But I was lacking any kind of longer term vision as to what I was trying to build. And I didn't realize that at the time, what I told myself was I'm feeling like a lack of direction because I'm not part of a team and I'm not building long-term equity value. I'm just exchanging my time for money. I was on the periphery of a lot of teams. I'd built good relationships with my clients in, in those four years, I only worked for four different clients. And so I, I got to know the clients really well, but I was always just on the edge of the team. I never really felt part of it. So I tried to solve the wrong problem. I classified my problem as I need to be part of a team. I get that buzz from people. And I need to be building something of long-term value. So I'm going to go back into employment. And that's when I took the chief finance and operations officer job at Credo Business Consulting, which ticked those boxes, but it completely flipped the kind of lifestyle benefits because suddenly I was commuting into London four or five days a week and I was out of the house for 12 hours a day. And then two things happened with that job, one on the, the 8.30 a.m. morning on the first Monday that I started there, I was told that one of the senior partners was retiring and that kick-started a process which ended with us selling the business less than a year later. And my wife got pregnant with twins, our third and fourth kids. And so that year where Joe was 
incredibly tired, but being pregnant with twins is just the most brutal physical experience you can go to outside of disasters. She describes it as the hardest thing she's ever done. And this is a woman who ran the London marathon and ruptured a muscle in her hip on mile 12 and finished the race and put herself on crutches for three months. So she's pretty tough and it was brutal. So she was exhausted and I was on the front end of, uh, of this deal process and exhausted as well. So I had the team around me, but in a really weird, strange process we were going through, it was a difficult time. And then I stayed a year post deal and then I left. This was 2018, so I was 38 years old. I finally started realizing some of these dynamics that have been driving my decisions over the years. And I realized that actually I don't need to be part of a team. I don't work very well as an employee and I need to start building something myself. Those are important statements. How did you figure this out? If I take the process I'd gone through, my final contract before I joined Credo was a year long contract with a uh, fantastic business leaders. And I really enjoyed working with them, but I was very much on the periphery of their team. I was probably as close to being part of the team as a consultant brought in by their private equity owners could be, but I, I still wasn't part of the team. And so I tried to solve that problem by becoming a part of a team. And I realized that that hadn't given me the emotional boost that I needed. And all it had really done was I, I did enjoy being part of the team, but it, it also just added significant layers of stress and significant layers of politics to, to navigate, particularly after the, the acquisition. Going through those experiences was what made me realize that this is what I thought I wanted, but it hasn't actually helped me feel more fulfilled or given me more direction or given me more passion for what I'm doing. It's like getting what you want and then realizing that actually it's not what you needed. Mm. Would you have an idea of how someone could avoid the pitfall of, of trying something and then realizing actually that's not what I want? Working really hard on your self-awareness, like having somebody holding up a mirror to you, whether that's a coach or a therapist or being part of a, a connection group of some kind where you explicitly invite somebody to tell you honestly what they see in you and using that as a tool to understand things about yourself that you're not even aware of. I think that's the only thing I found that really works. You can do it through meditation. You can do it through visualizations. You can do it through mission work. There's loads of different tools out there, but un until you do that work, you're just going to be driven by your emotional needs, the subconscious needs of your inner child that is sitting there wounded saying, so I'm feeling a bit rejected. I'm going to actually become an employee and then they can't reject me. And now, like now that I've done a lot more work and I've processed that and, and become a lot more self-aware, I realized that I don't need that validation. The way to avoid going down these dead ends is to find a different way to build up self-awareness, but any path you take is going to, should result in self-awareness. So the question is, how do you do that more efficiently? to that point earlier in your life. Yeah, exactly. So using your experiences as signals that you can then use to know about yourself and be more self-aware so that you can accelerate the process because you have to have some experience to know about yourself and we can try and, and be more proactive in the process.
which all have those emotional needs, for instance, of being accepted in a group. If they are unconscious, they may drive us much more strongly than we'd like. And being aware of those emotional needs somehow seem to reduce their influence on us. Right? Suddenly we can make a choice. Do I really need to belong there? Or actually do I want something else more strongly? Self-awareness puts us in a position of choice. Of what need do I really want to fulfill? Which one is important to me? Yeah. And if you can get to that point where you can identify something that you're feeling the need of, but just sit with that and put it to one side, if you don't think it's going to help you, then that's a really powerful place to get to. How do you sit with that? I don't, I don't do a very good job of it. It comes back to conscious versus unconscious behavior. And if, um, one of the things that I'm very interested in at the moment is the whole world of crypto and particularly how it can enable communities and communities can derive value from it. I read a lot about it and I end up joining quite a lot of discord communities. I'll participate a bit for a few days and then most of them, I just don't fit and my interest wanes. And I went through the process recently when I was feeling conscious of just leaving a whole ton of these communities and I'm down to three now, and I'll probably leave two of those as well. Cause there's only one where I've really felt this draw to keep coming back. So unconsciously I will join a bunch of things and then consciously I'll say, I don't need that in my life and remove it. And the trick is to get to a place where you just don't join in the first place. You've recognized that this is not going to give you what you need. It's fine to try some stuff out, but yep. do that very deliberately. And so I think for me in the moment, every day, everybody will have addictive behaviors and addictive things and go to things that they start doing or consuming. They are having thoughts that they're, or feelings that they're struggling to, to handle. For many people that's work. And work addiction isn't really recognized as work addiction, even though it's incredibly prevalent for some people. It's eating, it's alcohol, it's drugs, it's other it's shopping, it's other dysfunctional behaviors that don't help them. What I find is that I can recognize that I'm being pulled in that direction and that something unconscious is going on for me. And I, I try and sit with that feeling rather mm. than doing the thing that I'm being drawn to do through my addictive tendencies. And the, the best way I've found of suppressing those feelings at all is, is things like meditation and exercise and connection to other people. So it's hard to do it in the moment. It's hard to do it through willpower in the moment. What you can do is just build those muscles over time so that you are more and more able to recognize when you're acting unconsciously and stop it and shift back into a conscious mindset. I, I stopped drinking coffee over the summer. It was a true addiction. Coffee maybe does something special in my body physiologically that really aroused me very strongly. And I love the taste of coffee still, but it just put me into a state that was in a constant need. I was constantly thinking about it and I stopped and, and I, I'm really with you on sitting with the feeling, the discomfort in a way of actually wanting something. It could be like wanting to go into the crypto blogs or communities. It could be obviously all of the other addictions that we can think of, but also it could be about work and doing stuff that actually you don't need to do, like obviously going on our phones. And I found that sitting with the discomfort, being okay with feeling the discomfort makes it go away as long as you stay curious about the discomfort. 
I find it extremely difficult. And I think it's true for everyone. I think we're just wired to avoid the discomfort, the feeling of I want something. So I'll just grab what gives me the satisfaction and, and the, I guess the boost of dopamine. But yeah, and I think meditation, at least for me, has really great, greatly helped me just to yeah. overcome that. For me, there's, there's two stages to working through that. The first thing is to forgive yourself for the thing that you do, like just try and drop any shame associated with it. The thing that I found really helpful for that is a phrase my therapist said, which is at any moment in time, you make the best decision you're capable of making. It doesn't mean it's the best decision that anyone would have made in that situation, but it's the best decision that you, given all of your psychology and physiology and everything else that's going on for you, were capable of making. So don't beat yourself up about it. Like you, you're doing the best you can. And that removes the toxic shame, which is a self-perpetuating problem. And then the second piece is, as you say, learning to sit with it. And if you can sit with it for long enough, it will pass and you'll come through and meditation, connection to other people, feeling loved in other ways are just tools to use to get through those moments when it happens faster and for it to be less intense when it happens. Yeah, thank you for adding this. I think this first part is so critical and, and I would call it self-compassion and just giving yourself a bit of love and saying, okay, you're good enough. You took your coffee this morning. It's okay. Or it hurts. It's okay. That feeling actually is in a way hurting. It is a, yeah. a discomfort, but it actually, it's just a bit of pain. And if you give yourself a bit of compassion, it actually really helps soothe that discomfort. Thanks for digging on this with me. Now I'm looking at time. Is there anything else that you think is worth talking about? The number one thing that has really helped me in the last couple of years is to get that sense of self-awareness and the best tool I've found to do that is to have someone hold up a mirror and say, this is what I see when I look at you. This is what I observe. Like, why are you doing that? Ask questions. And I find my men's groups very powerful for that. And finding other people that are going through that same journey, incredibly powerful. And it's had a like, really profound impact on my sense of peace and my ability to navigate stressful situations in my relationship with my kids and my relationship with my wife. But what, what excites you most about the path you're on? I, mean, I might open a can of worms on a whole new topic here, but I think the world is about to go through a really profound societal shift that's enabled by the next wave of technology that's coming through. And I think in particular, the world of work and the way that we interact with corporate organizations is going to just change profoundly. And I think there's super exciting opportunities to help people make the most of that, those opportunities to navigate their way through that change and, and to really bring people together in a connected way, build communities, have a lot of fun doing it. My training business is, is a small nugget as part of this broader vision to try and help people sh shift into this new world of working, but I have to do that consciously in the awareness that I've got bills to pay. And so this a constant tension between running a business that, that supports my family and building towards this broader, bigger vision. But I'm just super excited about the way that things might change over the next few years and the, the freedom and uh, opportunities and choices that people are going to have and helping everybody navigate their way through that as best they can. 
So what do you see for the next few years in terms of the way the world of work will change? I think the, the nature of the employer employee relationship is going to fundamentally shift as more and more people say, I don't need to just work for one firm for even for a few years, dedicate a hundred percent of my working time to that one firm. It's going to become so much easier for people just to contribute to multiple different organizations that are fundamentally structured in a way where they're not about one entrepreneur that is leading the charge to try and make themselves wealthy and bring a few people on the ride with them. They're about a group of people with shared interests, creating value together and putting that out into the world. And that dynamic is just going to, is just going to change things enormously. And the technology now for the first time exists to enable people to collaborate in that way, to work remotely in that way. And not just technology, but the societal shift towards remote working enables people to work in that way, in a way that even two years ago would have been much more difficult. People can now work asynchronously anywhere in the world and contribute massive value to communities and projects. And the technology exists to fairly compensate people in a way that is much harder to uh, manipulate and defraud people through blockchain technology. So we have this societal and technological revolution that is just in the foothills that I think is going to be the defining thing of the next 10 or 20 years for our societies. So that's why I'm excited about it. Yeah. And when you say next few years, can you be a little more precise? What you think is the time horizon when there is a, a real shift happening? It's hard to say with these things, but I certainly think we will see in 2022, 2023, more of these types of organizations springing up. You know, there's talk in the US at the moment about the great resignation Mm -hmm. and people not coming back to work. In the UK, we have what is particularly in professional services and retail and various of the areas of industry, there's a massive talent shortage. And part of that is because people are realizing that they don't need to work for businesses anymore. They don't need to work for companies. They can be much more in control of their own lives and the way they operate. So I think it could come through really quite quickly. Next mm-hmm. two, three years, we could see, start to see mass evidence of this type of shift to a new way of working. Maybe we do a uh, next round then. That'd be awesome. Cool. Derry, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast and, and opening up. My pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Great talking to you. I hope this episode inspired you to follow your passion and purpose because that's my mission with this podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. Also, if you know someone who's looking for direction, I run a six-week course which combines deep personal work, group coaching sessions, and a buddy system. Participants love the course. You can learn more at www.darebe.me. Darebe is spelled D-A-R-E. B-E dot M-E. Derby yourself.